0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: You're listening to the Pull Box Podcast the International Graphic Novel Book Club. Here are your hosts, Curtis Finley and Michael Cohen. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pullbox Podcast. I've got a very special guest with me here today. His name is John Semper Jr. And um, you may not recognize the name, but you probably know a lot of his work because he's been um, a vital part of... um, you know the children's uh, childhoods of uh the 80s and 90s especially if you watched the, the Spider-Man cartoon that aired on Fox Kids in the early 90s um welcome to the show John how are you today
0: well thanks for having me Curtis i'm fine and uh i'm delighted to be here i always like to talk about me
1: <laughs> yeah that's great well then uh then you're then i guess i'm talking to the right person uh, you definitely are <laughs> um so before we, uh, the point of uh, our interview, I think is going to end up talking about Cyborg, which you, who you are now um, writing um, for DC Comics. But I want to start kind of back at the beginning and talk about a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and um, and Spider Man. Um, on your um, on your YouTube page, you posted a little video, a short video, I guess, of a of a, an animation that you made in college. Of Sherlock Holmes? Yes, um, yes. So are you trained as an animator?
0: Well, I'm not trained as an animator. Back in those days, um, it was not really something you could get trained in while you were in school. Um, so you had to kind of do stuff on your own, if, you know, if you wanted to do, learn anything. And that's pretty much what I did. Uh, I'm always amazed today, I, I lectured, at the beginning of the year I lectured at fall state in Indiana, and they have this amazing building, a couple of buildings actually, um, one, of, one of which is named after Dave Letterman. Uh, and, and these buildings are filled with nothing but video equipment and film equipment and green screen studios. And, and it amazes me that you can go to college now and come out with a degree in something like animation or something like filmmaking or sound work or whatever um, back when I was in college, it really wasn't possible. I think there were only two, two major universities that were teaching anything related to film, and that was USC and UCLA, three, actually, because I think NYU was also there. Right. But um, I, I graduated from Harvard, and they really didn't have any film program to speak of. Um, and so uh, I just did a lot of stuff on my own. And uh, there was a, the format uh, that was uh, burgeoning at that time uh, was Super 8, and Super 8 sound was brand new, so for the first time you could shoot something on your own that had sync sound, synchronized sound, and that was a, that was a very big deal. Um, so I was playing around a lot with Super 8, and, uh, and I, I decided I would do some stop-motion animation, and that was, that's how that little Sherlock Holmes film got made. I just wanted to play around with stop-motion animation.
1: So it was, it was just a, a little side project for you then?
0: That's all that there was to do in film back in those days. At Harvard, they had this building, the uh, Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts. Most of the floors were devoted to people who were working uh, to become architects. So they were all about design and architecture and that sort of stuff. But down in the basement, they had film stuff going on, a little bit of film stuff going on. And they had a 16 millimeter camera and and a Nagra uh, 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 audio recorder. Um, And so if you were really very adventurous, you could get that equipment and go out and make a film. But it was so expensive back in those days to make film. Um, And then when I I stumbled across a fellow named Bob Doyle um, at Harvard who was inventing wonderful things to do with Super 8, and one of them was synchronized sound, and and that was strictly extracurricular. He was... I think he he was in the science department or something of that sort. He was a brilliant guy, and he was just doing this on his own because he was interested in it, and he eventually formed a company called Super 8 Sound that was based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, I affiliated with Bob, so I had access to all this wonderful equipment to play around with, and I made a lot of short films, and I did a a lot of little animation, and it was all extracurricular. It was all on my own. And that's how I taught myself how to edit. And that's how I taught myself a lot about animation. And those days you'd get books, you know, and, and learn all these different things. But that was my film education was was strictly uh, extracurricular.
1: So has animation always been an interest of yours?
0: Yes, ever since I was a kid. I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. When I was a kid, I got very excited about Walt Disney and Disney movies. and. Uh, uh, a movie that had a profound influence on me was Sleeping Beauty because oh, yeah. it was you know, widescreen and stereo sound and had that fantastic action sequence at the end with Prince Philip fighting the dragon. And, and that just, I, t- the fact that that could be made, the fact that you could do that, make something like that for a living was overwhelming uh, to me. And I decided right then and there that I wanted to make cartoons. So I'm I'm pretty much doing exactly what I set out to do all these years.
1: You've been uh you've been with pretty much every major studio it seems over the years. Um other than Spider-Man, what was the highlight for you for you Disney, Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, Henson?
0: Well, there are a lot. Of, I'm happy to say that there were a lot of highlights. Um I'm lucky that there were a lot of highlights. I Arrived in this town and within days I was meeting uh, all the heads of all the major animation studios That's because I worked for a gentleman by the name of Sheldon Renan Um, I had done some work for Sheldon in Boston when I was in college uh, On a TV series that he had done for PBS Years later when he found out that I was coming to Los Angeles or actually coming to the uh, West Coast he um, hired me to work with him on a project that uh involved us meeting all the heads of all this of the of all the animation studios wow. he was working he was working for a client that wanted to buy an animation studio so in the name of research we were going and interviewing everybody so literally within days of arriving in la i was at disney studios which was a dream come true i was at hanna-barbera which was kind of a dream come true. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was uh, at Filmation, which was one of the big animation studios of that particular moment in time. This yep. is 1970, 1979. Um, Ruby Spears, we met with Ken Ruby and... and uh, I'm sorry, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears. Um, so, uh, yeah, at Hanna-Barbera, they, they let us sit in on a Flintstones recording session. So we were you know, sitting in a room with Mel Blank and Henry Corden and Gene Vanderpile. And, and uh, it was, you know, it, for someone who had grown up loving cartoons, it was everything.
1: I it can just imagine. Everything. That's, wow, what an opportunity. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing.
0: So that, that was one high point. Another high point very quickly was working with Jim Henson. I did the animated Fraggle Rock for Jim. Working with Jim Henson was heaven. Um, and then another high point was working with George Lucas. I did a project uh, for him for his uh, George Lucas Educational Foundation. So I was up at Skywalker Ranch for a couple of weeks and working directly with George, and that was cool. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I mean, working with Stanley. You know how do you how do you rank these things? No, you I don't. don't know
1: how to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, how did you get it's uh, associated with Marvel? entertainment uh, with a Spider-Man show. You'd worked for Marvel a couple times before that with some other animated shows, right?
0: Yeah, there were some different Marvel companies. There was a company that used to be depatie Freeling that got turned into Marvel Productions, right. which actually was only loosely affiliated with Marvel Comics. It gave Stan an opportunity to move to Hollywood and have an office somewhere, so he had an office in the back of this company called Marvel Productions, which was right on Sepulveda Boulevard. And um, when I left Hanna-Barbera, I kind of followed the woman who had been in charge of everything at Hanna-Barbera was Margaret Lesch. She left to to go head up Marvel Productions, and she took uh, myself and my partner Cynthia Friedlob with her. So we were now working at um, Marvel Productions, and that's where I met Stan. I of course had worshipped Stan all my life. I used to always kid kid him and say, "Stan, I I paid good money to see you speak when I was in college." And if I had known that I was going to be spending so much time with you, I would have saved that fifteen dollars. <laughs> um, but I got to know Stan really well, and we became pretty good friends. And um, that's you know that's really that was my first connection with Marvel. Really was uh, was working for Marvel Productions. But at that time, Marvel Productions was mostly a production house that did. Um, Uh, that did uh, cartoon shows for Hasbro. Couldn't think of the name of the toy company. Right, like My Little
1: Pony and and stuff like that. That's
0: that's exactly right. In fact, my first series that I ever ran as a showrunner was a series that that was in the middle of My Little Pony called Moondreamers. And uh, I did 13 episodes of Moondreamers, which I just bought a bootleg copy of on eBay.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a (laughs) pretty obscure show, I think.
0: It's a very obscure show. It's a wonderful little cartoon. I had a great time doing it, but that was the first show I ever ran, and uh, I'm proud to say that one of my writers on that show was a guy by the name of Chuck Laurie.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, for sure. He's huge now.
0: Yeah, I was just, I took the Warners, I had a, a friend in from out of town, and we took the Warner Brothers tour. And there's now a Chuck Laurie building. There are like, you know, there's, there's several buildings on the lot that have, that are the Chuck Laurie buildings. Wow! And I thought to myself, I remember when he was two offices down from me at Marvel Productions. So. <laughs> and so, what
1: led to your involvement in the Spider-Man cartoon?
0: Well, that came through Stan. Um, Stan and I, as I said, became good friends, and then I went off and and did other stuff. Um, Marvel Productions closed down eventually. Uh, and I, um, at that particular time, I think Cynthia and I went off, and we were, we were under contract to NBC and we were doing the Henson, we were doing stuff for Henson. Um, I was one of the people who helped invent or create dog city, which was a, a, a thing that Jim Henson did. Oh yeah. I um, used to watch that one. Yeah, it was, it's a cute, it's a cute show. I'm very proud of, of having been involved in it. Uh, I was working on a PBS show called puzzle place. Which which is best forgotten? I mean, it was oh, no. it was just just the mess. It, the production was a mess, and I, I was not terribly fond of the people, and they weren't terribly fond of me. Oh, um, and I'm in the middle of working on that show. It was a puppet show, and. Uh, uh, the uh, the only real claim to fame there was that uh, the puppets were designed by kevin clash who would later go on to become famous as elmo right um but this show was not a not a terribly well put together show but i'm working on that show and uh, i was in the backyard of one of the producers uh reading variety and 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 it announced that there was going to be a spider-man animated show okay no actually the story begins even a couple of years earlier i'm uh, I'm at Stanley's Christmas party, and um, Jim Cameron was one of the guests, and uh, Gail Ann Hurd was there, and a whole bunch of people were there. Kevin Smith was there, and a a whole bunch of people. And um, Jim, at that time, was going to be doing the Spider-Man movie.
1: Right, I remember.
0: Yeah, and that was why he was there, was that he was hanging out with Stan, because they were going to be working on the Spider-Man movie this big movie, and um, Margaret was at the party, and I happened to be standing. This is so weird, because if you wrote this in a movie, it would seem hokey. I happened to be standing right there at the moment that Margaret and Stan and Jim were talking about doing an animated show based on all the excitement of the fact that Jim was going to do this Spider-Man movie. Yeah. And Margaret said, you know, we can do this, and we can do that, and we can get somebody really talented to to write the show, like John, and she points to me.
1: <laughs> nice. and, I, I,
0: and I thought, well, that's a very nice thing. And and then because I've been in Hollywood for many years, I thought, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> 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 um, and I was right, because the next thing that happens is like a year later, I'm in the back of, uh, of Sonia Rosario's backyard, and we're thinking up stories for Puzzle Place, and I open up a variety, and... There's the the announcement that they're going to do this animated show. And the showrunner is going to be somebody else. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I I thought, okay. Um, Then about a month later, I get a call from Stan. Maybe it wasn't even a month. Maybe it was a few weeks later I get a call from Stan. You know, the, the funny thing was, at the time I said to myself... Wouldn't it be great if it didn't work out with, with that showrunner and, and Stan called me and said, John, you're the only guy for the job, you know, kind of like <laughs> like 42nd Street, you know, go on out there, kid, only you can do this. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, that's what, what what happened was I got a call from Stan about a week or two later and uh, he said, uh, we're having trouble making a deal with this particular showrunner and I, I, I want to put your hat into the ring. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. You know, this that would be a dream job. And I should point out that not only was that show going to be the biggest show of that particular moment, but it was also, you know, Spider-Man was my number one favorite comic book. And um, and so for me, it, it really represented a dream job. So here I now have Stan Lee calling me up and saying, guess what? I want to throw your hat into the ring to do this dream job. And I it was, it was overwhelming. And I said, great. And then a week later, he called me up and he said, We made the deal with the other guy. I'm sorry I got you all excited, you know. And (laughs) and good good luck to you.
1: That's (laughs) oh,
0: you know, Excelsior.
1: How how disappointing.
0: (laughs) And so uh, that was that. And um, I continued working on Puzzle Place. And um, about many months later, and I I can never get the timeline correct, but I'm going to say something like six months later. Um. I got a call from Stan and it was the exact same call this time. It was, you know, we're, we're having a lot of difficulties here and we're thinking that we need a new showrunner to take over. And this time I just I'm going to tell them that you're the guy. And I said, absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, and he did. Stan is is wonderful for having done that. And, and it, it could not have happened without him. Uh, making me the showrunner. He just made me the showrunner. Um, I'm not even sure that the network was necessarily all that thrilled or and certainly not the other people that were in charge of the show. That's, Stan just, you know, basically took me by the scruff of my neck and shoved me into it and said this is the guy and and that's how I got the show I left puzzle place those people are still angry with me today I'm sure that I just completely left that show <laughs> uh, because um, you know one show was destined for obscurity and the other show was basically the show that was going to to uh, to make my name uh, and uh, how can
1: anyone over- blame you
0: yeah there you go I went over to Spider-Man and Spider-Man was, uh, at that particular time was a big mess. It was a huge mess and it was, uh, running the risk of not getting on the air. And, um, somehow I managed to pull it all together and, and we got on the air and we ended up uh, being a number one show. So that's that story.
1: Wow. Yeah. What a, what a series of events that is like, uh, Ups and downs, <laughs> but uh, yeah it's it's such a vital part I think of uh, of all of our childhoods that when we grew up in in that era I know I watched it um, through high school and mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah the influence it had on the comics and on just the spider-man culture is uh, is fantastic. so yeah thank you for
0: making it what it was. Well, my pleasure thank you for for having watched it and having enjoyed it
1: yeah um let's see let's move on to uh to what you're working on these days um you've got a couple of different projects going on um are you still working on the, that uh there's a horror TV show that you were involved in for a while right <laughs> or web yeah. series
0: uh I did it that was the vanity project that was all me oh, okay and, uh... Uh, I I created that and I found some lovely people who were willing to pay for it uh, and I ended up paying for a good portion of it myself, but um, I I affiliated with a gentleman by the name of Patrick Greathouse uh, and uh, he had a company called Asylum House, uh, Asylum House Productions and um, he came in on it. uh, It started out as a web series. I did a web series with an actress. One of my actress friends was complaining to me, uh, this is in the early days of YouTube, Uh, one of my actress friends was complaining to me that she wasn't getting any work and she wasn't getting any attention. And I said, well, you know, there's this new thing called YouTube and people are putting, uh, putting their, uh, you know, their stuff up on YouTube. And she said she was Dutch and she had a little bit of an accent. She said, oh, no that is for porn that is for porn <laughs> <laughs> and i said no i said there's something you know there's a whole other thing going on and people are putting these funny ideas up there and we should do a web series that would uh, that would showcase your talent and uh so i created this character for her uh called creeporia that was comedy horror and we shot we only shot for two days with her, but then I, I added a whole bunch of animation and goofy stuff, and uh, and I ended up I had planned on doing five episodes. I think we only got as far as four before I just pooped out because I was doing everything myself. And we put the four episodes up. I put the four episodes up, and then um, uh, Pat saw it. And a long story short he approached me and we ended up going into business together and we decided to do something longer and more elaborate and more expensive Um, And we did that. Uh, I shot it in uh, Indiana Uh, I was there for a month and then it took me a couple of years to To put everything together because again, I did everything myself. I did all the animation I did most of the animation. I I had a couple of other people come in to do some animation, too and um, Yeah, Creeporia exists. It is, it's, uh, I I just, you know, it's a complete vanity project because it's something that I wanted to do and it represents my bizarre sense of humor. And um, (laughs) it's currently on Amazon. You can see it now on Amazon uh, via video streaming. It's also on Vimeo. Um, It might even at this time be on YouTube as part of their pay service, but it's definitely on Amazon. It looks great on Amazon. Uh, I, I, I watch it. The strange thing about Creeporia is, it's certainly not the best thing I've done, but it's the thing that I enjoy the most. I I can watch, I can sit down and watch Creeporia and and say to myself, I'm only going to watch five minutes of it, and I end up watching all three and a half hours of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, uh, but I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's very silly. So yeah.
1: And um, now you are uh, you're the the writer for um, Cyborg for DC Comics. Um, mm-hmm. wh- how did how did that gig happen?
0: I got a phone call. Would you like to be the writer of Cyborg for DC Comics? I said yes.
1: Wow, simple it's as that. that. Simple. <laughs> it's that well, simple. Well, good. <laughs> so this was your first real work working with this character?
0: Uh, the comic book, yes. Uh, I actually wasn't terribly familiar with the character um, prior to beginning, which I think was uh, a good thing yeah. because... Um, yeah, you know, there, there are some difficulties, I think, at this particular point in time with Cyborg that I could come at from a fresh perspective. I didn't bring to it any preconceived notions of who Cyborg was. So, um, I mean, I was familiar. I knew the character existed, but, he, you know, it was he was not a character that I had... Been heavily invested in as a comic book reader, right? Uh, so when I got this gig, uh, and I should mention the gig actually came to me through through someone I knew named Dan Evans, uh, who called, he was the one who called me up and said, "How would you like to do it?" So I thank Dan for for having uh, gotten me involved, and uh, I also um, thank Dan DeDio. I've known Dan DeDio, who's the head of DC Comics, for close to 20 years, and we had always talked about me doing something over there. Um, and it just had never quite come together. So this was the time that it came together. So the two Dans are responsible. They're the ones who, who basically brought me over. Um, the uh, When I started reading what had been done with Cyborg lately, uh, it, it became apparent to me that this was a character in dire need of a personality. Ah. Somehow he had just been overlooked when it came to figuring out who he was and what's going on in his head i think with a character like this sometimes you get a little overwhelmed with all the, the powers and the gizmos and the um, the you know the, the sort of flash flashy whiz-bang kinds of things but right. um no one had really taken time to figure out who he was as a personality and so that's that's what's interesting is i've sort of made that his problem in a way his problem is that he's um, he is trying to figure out who he is in the scheme of things, and that reflects a little bit of of, uh, of what I saw as being the biggest difficulty for the reader. Is just you know who is this character? Why should I care about him? What's it? What what do we have in common? What what do I, the reader, and Cyborg have in common that should make me want to pick this comic book up and follow his adventures? And I don't think that had ever been done before. I think everybody got very caught up in previous uh, incarnations of, of Cyborg. Everyone was very caught up in all the cool things he could do and wasn't really concentrating very much on who he was. So that's what I'm bringing to the table uh, with Cyborg. I, I can guarantee anybody that will pick up the comic, you've never seen a Cyborg comic like this before. It just it hasn't existed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so. well, and these first couple of issues that are out now um, are, yeah, they show that right away. Like you, you, that's evident from the beginning that this is going to be the f- focus of your book. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it's something that's been explored in kind of sci-fi before. Like, you know, Data has these, what does it mean to be human kind of things. But this one has a different twist because Cyborg is human, but has felt like he's lost that humanity. So he's on this journey, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he started out, you know, data didn't start out as human. Um, and uh, there was a great show on recently. Uh, and I don't know what network it was on because I watched it on streaming, but it was called Humans. And um, the again, it was about machines who are, you know, who are trying to figure out their place in humanity. And I thought it was very well done. Um, I think that that Cyborg is a little bit closer to uh RoboCop in that he's someone who started out human and uh, yeah. and now uh you know has to figure out if if there's any of that still left in him. Now that's been explored before.
1: So, right, I guess 7 of 9 is another example from Star Trek. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that in the Zeitgeist. Um and it's even been explored before in within the context of a uh of a Cyborg comic book, but I'm, you know, the problem, I think, in Cyborg in the past has been, <clears throat> you can make that the issue, but if you don't even really know who the human is, then it's sort of irrelevant. Right. Um, so if you've just got this, this thinly defined character who's constantly wailing and moaning about whether or not he's human, it, it just doesn't resonate um and what i'm bringing to the table is i'm trying to really investigate who he is as a human so that that issue becomes more significant um, yeah
1: yeah and i always prefer that in my comics as well i there's a there's definitely a balance between the action you have to put in these kind of comics plus uh, versus the the character development and i always love to skew a little bit more toward the character development so the fact that your most recent issue has this really long scene in it that takes place in this jazz club with this blind jazz musician. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just that that was the highlight of both of these issues that you've that, that have come out so far. Um, it was just a, a really, you could see um, w- how, how Cyborg is processing things. So yeah, well written. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was very excited about this second issue um but i was also a little trepidatious uh i think people are going to have to get used to in my comic book they're going to have to get used to dialogue because i do like dialogue and i think that dialogue helps bring out personality yeah and i think that that um if your comic is just simply a series of fights you know, uh, they did that in the in the cyborg uh, issues, the, the run before me, where basically every comic was a big fight. Yeah. And I don't think that that really serves the character well. I think we need to know who the character is a lot more before Definitely. those fights mean anything. And uh, yeah, thank you. I'm really glad you enjoyed that issue. It was kind of a favorite of mine too, but it was a little scary to put it out there.
1: Well, I think it's gonna it because it's it's um because it's the. F- kind of, I guess, the first issue of this new ongoing cyborg. It, it sets the tone right away. So I'm, I'm happy that that's what the tone is going to be, and it'll be great to see where this goes from here. Um, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about um, the, the cast of characters you have in here. Um, I'm not familiar with, um, with your secondary characters, so I don't know their history or even if they existed before. So characters, I mean, I, I know Silas Stone um, his father is from a long time in the comics. But what about Sarah and Tom, those characters? Are those your creations, or where did they come from?
0: Tom and Sarah did exist before, but they suffered from the same problem, which is that they really didn't have very well-defined personalities. When I read the previous run, to get up to speed with the character, I after 12 issues, 13 issues, I still had no idea who they were or <laughs> why I should care right uh or even really how they related to cyborg so again all of you know and i get excited when i see that there are problems like that because then i think okay well that's where i can go everything i need to do is based on reading the thing that pre-existed and then thinking to myself okay what's missing here what's wrong what don't i like why am i bored um And so, in a way, things that aren't right, you gain more from, in a way, than things that are done right. Because things that are done right are usually, it's usually harder to figure out, well, why is that that working? You know, it it always seems so seamless and so so easy to, um, to, um, to just comprehend. But things that aren't working, you can usually instantly identify what's missing. Like, oh, that character's boring. Well, why is she boring? Well, because I don't know who she is, and therefore I don't care. Well, why don't you know what? What would make me care about her? And then that's really where you can start having fun—is to figure out. Well, what if she's this, and what if she's that? What if her relationship with Vic is this, and, and that sort of thing? And that's really uh, a lot of what I'm doing with this book. I, I will start introducing newer characters. The jazz. Uh, performer, by the way, uh, for instance, Blue is new. Okay. He's an invention of mine.
1: And is he going to be a recurring character in your book?
0: He will a little bit. He nice. will. Uh, and uh, he'll be a little bit of a Yoda uh, to, yeah. uh, to Vic. Um, yeah, I see but...
1: Blue is a Yoda and Sarah is kind of an Obi-Wan.
0: Yeah, Sarah is going to be interesting. There are some things about Sarah that we're going to find out down the line. Uh, you know, with regard to her relationship with Vic. Um, yeah, I mean everybody's going to get a developed backstory and and we're gonna find out things about them that we didn't know. And there are gonna be new characters. I kind of had to start this comic book out by um, Jeff Johns really wanted me to establish the world. And establish the characters you know that have pre-existed so I I couldn't introduce too many new characters up front right but as as we progress uh, actually in in issue 8 which I'm writing now I'm introducing a major new character who will be very important to uh, to Vic Uh, and in issues 6 and 7 I've introduced another major new character so it's it's going to get very exciting as far as expanding his world and uh, you know, if, if you're at all interested in this character, this is the run I think that you should be paying attention to. And for people who have never been interested in Cyborg, I would recommend that they jump in now because the, I I just think that if he's if he's not going to be interesting to you after this, then nothing would make him interesting to you. Yeah. On the other <laughs> hand, I think I think that he will be. You know, this run will make him uh, very exciting and very interesting. So. I also
1: really like the artist that, that uh, has been paired with you. Um, let's see, Paul Pelletier. Is, it a, is that how it's yeah. pronounced? Yeah, he's uh, he's he's great. He he's, his artwork is clear and his um, just his storytelling is really uh, well laid out. How yeah. how do you work with Paul? Like what kind of uh, what kind of working relationship do you have there?
0: Well, we were paired by DC. I did not know him or his artwork, and and uh, I wrote my script, my first script, co- you know, completely in the dark. And I was very descriptive, even going so far as to indicate how I wanted the, the pages laid out. Then I got this amazing, astounding artwork back, and I breathed a sigh of relief because I, obviously, I was in you know the, my material was in the hands of a genius. Yeah, and and. See, I have a thing. Here's the thing with me, which is that I'm not really an avid comic book reader because I think that with so many comics, when you open up the comic, there's an assault of design and layout, and, and you know, it's, it's almost too much. It gets in the way of telling the story. Right. And then it's exacerbated by writers who are so busy proving that they're Brilliant and cool that they forget to tell the story. <laughs> so you know there's I was joking with this uh, with with my uh, my girlfriend where you open up the comic and it's almost like the comic is constantly saying to you. You don't think this is brilliant? Well, f you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You turn every page, you know. You don't understand what I'm doing here. Well, f you. You don't, you know. You don't know who this character is. This character has existed for thirty years, and if you don't know his backstory, then f you. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah there's definitely a lot of that.
0: <laughs> and my, you know, one of the one of the criticisms that I've heard, um, the the response to Cyborg so far has been fantastic, and the reviews have been great. But every once in a while, I'll read a bad review or, you know, a fair to midland review. One of the um, one of the comments I hear a lot is, well, you know, Semper's writing is on the nose. It's on the nose. Well, here's the deal. I believe that you should open up a comic book and you should have no trouble getting engrossed in the story immediately. Right. You should very clearly understand who the characters are. You should very clearly understand who the world is. And, and that should happen with every issue. You should be able to pick it up. And Not have read any of the previous issues and still be able to jump in and understand what's going on So what I love about Paul's artwork see Paul draws the way I like for comic book artists to draw Which is to make everything very clear and clean and easy to read easy to understand And I'm trying to write that way. I'm not interested in whether or not you think I'm a creative genius I've, I've had a you know 30 years in this business. I know I'm doing something right so I don't need to prove anything. What I'm trying to do with this comic book is entertain you. I want you to read it and I want you to like the characters and I want you to like the story. I'm not interested in trying to establish myself as a brilliant genius. So um, I think the combination of Paul and I is a, is a pretty effective combination. Paul draws very clearly. I write very clearly and the stories are good. And, um, and so he and I now Know one another, and we understand one another really well, and I think we've got a good rhythm going. I've got a couple of other great artists on this on this book. I've got a, uh, an artist by the name of Will Conrad. Oh yeah, and,
1: who did uh, the cover?
0: Excuse me, Will and Will and Paul are, are alternating, uh, and so uh, I think Paul's doing the first batch of issues, but then Will comes in maybe like issue three or four. And, and then they're alternating a bit. And then there's another new artist whose name I can't remember right at the moment. Uh, he just started. And I'm just getting his first pages in. And, and and Paul sort of oversees everything. So, you know, Paul has a lot of... Um, uh, Paul, you know, uh, uh, gives a lot of commentary. Um, okay. And, and, you know... We're all we're all working together. I think really well, and all of these guys draw just very cleanly and very clearly, and they don't have that f you kind of attitude. That, oh, good. <laughs> you know that you get. Um, I mean, so many times I open up comic books and they're just kinetic wallpaper to me. They don't. I, I'm not compelled to really delve into the world that's sitting there on, on the paper. But yep. with these guys, I, I always am, and I'm I'm very fortunate, and I thank DC for uh, preparing me up with just brilliant artists.
1: Um, no, Cyborg is also in the Justice League book. Do you have um, how much of your story writing? Um, like, do you have to be aware of what's happening to Cyborg in, in Justice League in your comic no, as well?
0: Not at all. And, not at all, and I and I don't think they're aware of what I'm doing.
1: Okay, perfect, nice. And but then if you really change the status quo of this character, would mm-hmm. that be affected? Would that be um, would would that be felt in the Justice League book?
0: No. I don't think so. Uh I don't uh there's been no mandate to have to do that and and I'm not really paying any attention to what's going on in the Justice League book. I I am reading it a little bit, but um that's their world and I'm yeah. doing my thing and Nice. yeah, it's, it's separate. Yeah.
1: Well, writing for a team book is so different anyway than a solo solo character. Mhm. Just before we sign off, um I wanted to give you a chance to plug one of your newest endeavors here you're working on um, a little uh, uh, crowdfunding project right now right you want to tell us a little bit about that
0: well bless your heart for asking um, prior to doing cyborg when I had you know when I was doing a whole bunch of little things and freelance things and and uh, wasn't quite as occupied as I am right now I decided that I would crowdfund a project based on a concept that I've always loved. I've always loved the old Rocketeer concept, the uh, uh, Commando Cody, Rocket Man. He was originally called the Rocket Man, uh, from the old Republic serials. And I always thought that that character needed to be um, brought back to life in some form, Uh, not specifically that character, but some kind of character like that. A guy who straps a rocket on his back and goes off and fights Nazis uh, during World War II in America. So basically fighting uh, Nazi spies. And, um, and so I created this, this thing called War of the Rocket Men that I crowdfunded. I did, the crowdfunding is complete. Um, and we raised a good amount of money. And I was going to create a, an animatic for a pilot, a pilot for an animated show, uh, done in animatic style, which is just individual frames with camera movement and soundtrack. Yep. And for the soundtrack, I brought back the cast of Spider-Man the Animated Series. I, I got everybody back, Chris Barnes, the voice of Spider-Man, Saratoga Valentine, the voice of Mary Jane Watson, Ed Asner, the voice of uh, of uh, J. Jonah Jameson. So everybody came back, and, and then, at, right after the crowdfunding ended, I got this DC gig. <laughs>
1: No, <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> and i've been cranking out two scripts a, a month um because uh, cyborg is uh, two issues a month and i have been swamped um but i am finally seeing daylight and i'm getting back to war of the rocket men uh so for any of you out there who've been waiting it is going to happen um and uh oh and one of the perks for that was that i was going to write the the final episode of spider-man that never got made the imaginary final episode where peter finds mary jane that yes. was one of the perks I'm sure everyone's asking people, for that yeah a lot of people come at come uh, you know and approached me and said they missed out on the crowdfunding will there be a chance to get peter finds mary jane there will be i'm going to figure something out so that people who want it can still donate and can get it um and uh, that's just fan fiction that's not affiliated with marvel or anything like that and uh, and it's, it's just a, a you know, fan fiction freebie that I'm giving away to people who've donated. And um, yeah, so War of the Rocket Men, it's gonna be a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully I will be able to get back to work on it uh, this month, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm counting on uh, getting back to work after the New York Comic Cons. So I've got the New York Comic Con coming up and then after that I'm gonna spend more time with War of the Rocket Men.
1: Thanks, John, for talking uh, with us about all of your work and your history. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation with you.
0: Well, thanks for having me. And and once again, I'd like to say on the record that I'm a big fan of yours and your cartoons that you do about your family and your kids. Everybody should be looking at those cartoons. And uh, and when you compile them into a book, they should be picking that up because it's an absolute delight. I really love it.
1: Great. Yeah, he's talking about uh, Kids A. It's my webcomic. You can find that at curtisfindley.tumblr.com or you can search for uh, Kids A. Um, that's E H, the Canadian A, uh, on, uh, <laughs> on Facebook. Um, yeah, thanks so much for that, John. Um, yeah, well, we wish you the best with Cyborg. We'll, I'll continue reading and um, we'll have to have you back on the show again in the future sometime.
0: Anytime. Anytime. Thank you Great. for having me. Thanks, John.
1: For more Pullbox Podcast episodes, you can check out pullboxpodcast.com to submit a reader poll. You can email thepullboxpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Twitter and on Instagram at podcast. You can follow me, Curtis, on Instagram at Curtis Bidley. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Arkwolf,
0: A-R-K-W-U-L-F. Can you can also find all of our other great podcasts over at thunderquack.com. And uh, uh that's the home of the Thunderquack Podcast Network, of which we are proudly a part. And uh, and if you want to help support all of our podcasts at Thunderquack, you can do that by heading to patreon.com/slash thunderquack. And uh, and and you can you can pledge your support over there. Every dollar helps, but uh if you're a pullbox fan and supporter, then you'd definitely be interested in the $20 level, which allows you to get all three episodes of the Pullbox podcast, all three of our books, as one super long episode uh, right at the beginning of the month, as opposed to having to wait for the individual
1: episodes to be released. So you can find all that at patreon.com slash thunderquack
0: and all of our other podcasts at thunderquack.com.